Lord, please don't bring a trial into my life that would be so strong that I will not be able to resist sin. You're listening to the sermon series, Matthew, the Gospel of the Kingdom, preached at King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. Well, I trust you had a very merry, joyful Christmas, celebrating with family, hopefully bringing glory to our Savior, considering considering that on Christmas Day. Today, of course, we find ourselves on the eve of a new year. And as we continue in the book of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, we are providentially at a very appropriate passage to consider. These words of Jesus, commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, give great focus to how we pray, but it also directs our goals, our plans, and our daily lives. How should you live in 2024? Well, this passage answers this question perfectly. But before we begin, let's be reminded that this is the very word of God that we hold in our hands. Uh, Last Sunday, we looked at a portion of John 17, and one of the verses that we did not look at was verse 17. You know this verse, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so that phrase really deserves its own sermon uh, because it powerfully shows Jesus's own view of scripture. He's saying that everything you have spoken in the law and the prophets and the continuing revelation that you have spoken through me is the truth. And not only is it the truth, but it is a sanctifying truth. It's a truth that makes us holy. It's a truth that grows us. It's a truth that causes us to become more like Jesus. The Puritan George Swinnick, he wrote this about the truth of God's word. Quote, the scripture is the rule of all truth. Other books are true no further than they are agreeable and commensurable to this. All other sayings and writings are to be tried by this touchstone. It is not what sense saith or what reason saith or what fathers say. There he's talking about early church fathers. Or what general counsels say or what traditions say or what customs say, but what scripture saith. That is to be the rule of faith and life. Whatsoever is contrary to scripture or beside scripture or not rationally deducible from scripture is to be rejected as garbage, spurious, and adulterate. And then he quotes from Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light, no truth in them. And so may the Holy Spirit guide us into truth this morning. May we submit our lives to it. Uh, November 26th, that was the last time that we were in Matthew chapter 6. If you remember, we learned about hypocritical praying. We talked about who is the audience of our prayers. It is not man, but it is God. And we also talked about the content of our prayers, that we're not to be known for just babbling, repetition, uh, cliche phrases that we say over and over and over again, but lose their meaning. But rather, our prayers should be marked by sincerity and simplicity. And so Jesus starts by instructing us how not to pray uh, based on what was happening at the time in Jewish culture. But now in verses 9 through 15, uh, 
he gives us what really is the application to the previous verses. This is how you pray. So for our outline this morning, I've split it up into two sections with each verse being a sub-point. So we pray with these things. We pray with reverence, verse 9, submission in verse 10, trust in verse 11, confession in verse 12, and hope in verse 13. And then for our application today, we're going to see that we forgive with mercy and forsaking bitterness. And even though this prayer has been called the Lord's Prayer, it really should be called the Disciples' Prayer because he is instructing his followers on how to approach God. And you might also notice that there's two, other, there's two parts. You can divide this up in a different way. Verses 9 and 10 have a focus on God's glory. And verses 11 through 13 focus on our needs as humans. As we look at historic liturgies of the church, historic orders of service of the church, uh, we see that this prayer was recited every Sunday during the Reformation of the 1500s, but we have mentions of it uh, being part of everyday life as far back as the second century. And so it seems like praying this prayer, both in private and in the corporate gathering, has been part of the church since its beginning. So just a raise of hands, how many of you grew up reciting this prayer on Sundays at church? Yeah, quite a few of you, quite a few of you. Uh, and in our church growing up, we sang it every Sunday. We sang it. There's a, there's a great melody that's put to uh, this prayer, and it's a joy to sing it. Uh, but not everybody has been a fan of this. Uh, the well-known Bible, radio Bible teacher through the Bible, J. Vernon McGee, uh, he said that he never used it on a Sunday. Why did he not use it? Well, this is what he said, quote, I don't think that a Sunday morning crowd should get up and pray, give us this day, this day our daily bread when they have a roast in the oven at home. They already have their meal. Okay, I think he misses the point a little bit there. Uh, but no matter if you have a roast in the oven at home, you may today. And in fact, actually, you should not have a roast in the oven at home. You know what you should have? Pork and sauerkraut. Pork and sauerkraut with mashed potatoes is what you should be eating on New Year's. I think we're going to have some of that later. So whatever you may have in your oven at home or if you're going to go out to eat after uh, for lunch here, it should, even though this is, he misses the point it, and it's a little funny, it should cause us to think. You know what? I do have a roast in the oven at home, but am I trusting the Lord will meet all of my needs? That's something we're going to talk about in a minute. But as we come to verse 9, we have a command from our Lord. He says, pray then like this. And in the parallel passage in Luke 11, the disciples come to him and they say, Lord, please teach us how to pray. And so Jesus' point this morning is not to give us a memorized prayer that we recite every Sunday. Now, of course, it's an absolute good thing to memorize this and to recite it, but that's not the point. The point is Jesus is saying, here, I'm giving you a framework. I'm giving you a guide for how you approach God in prayer. It's not about reciting these exact words, but it's considering these things. And one thing that should stick out to you right away is that the whole focus of this prayer is on God. All of it shows who he is and how he works. 
we pray to give him glory, ultimately. John MacArthur says, quote, Prayer is not trying to get God to agree with us or to provide for our selfish desires. Prayer is affirming God's sovereignty, righteousness, and majesty, and seeking to conform our desires and our purposes to his will and glory. It's a great definition. It's exactly right. And so we see right away that the prayer starts with reverence. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed is not a word that we use in our normal speech. It's an old English word. Uh, it comes from the Greek word hagiatso, and it means to acknowledge as holy, to be separated from profane things, to be pure. And often in the New Testament, it's translated as sanctify. And so in our prayers, we must approach God as one who is perfectly sanctified, perfectly holy, perfectly set apart. And as we come to him, we not only approach him as holy, but we ascribe or we give him, we give holiness to his name. We proclaim him as the one who is supremely holy. And it says, hallowed be your name. And so we recognize that the name of God comes with great honor. And he is worthy of this praise. But another way we come to him in reverence is with a growing understanding of who he is. Coming to him with any kind of false ideas or a willful, willful ignorance or a purposeful lack of study, that shows our irreverence to him. Not our reverence, that's irreverence. We cannot give glory to or revere a God that we do not know. And although we will never be perfect in our understanding... And, you know, we're all going to find out one day, hey, I was wrong about that, about God. We will. We're not perfect in that. Our desire should be to be continually growing in our understanding. In Psalm 16, David says, I have set the Lord continually before me, always before me. And so may we grow in this so that Every word, every action is guided by our understanding of who God is and what his word tells us. We also notice that this reverence for God also comes with a relationship. Reverence comes with a relationship. He is our father. He is not a pagan, false god like Molech in the Old Testament or Allah of the Muslims who demand reverence out of fear. No, there is a loving, personal relationship here. When Jesus was speaking these words, he was most likely speaking in Aramaic. And he would have used an Aramaic word that you all know. It's probably the only Aramaic word you know. And that's the word Abba. He probably would have used that word as he was speaking this. Now the term Abba, it's uh, a great term, but it has been overused. And it uh, comes with a lot of sugary, sweet sentimentality. So we must have a proper tension here. We know that God is our loving Father. He cares for us. He desires for us to come to him. He listens to us. But unlike any reference or any correlation to our earthly fathers, we must, we, we must remember that he is a thrice holy God. So we come to him as our father, yes, but we come to him in reverence. 
And one last aspect that brings us comfort is not only that he is our father, but tells us here he is our heavenly father. That's important. What does it tell us? It speaks to the great promises that he provides for us. Often when we see God referred to as our heavenly father, it's in the context of his provision. Just a couple verses later in verse 26, we see the care that our heavenly father gives to us. In Ephesians chapter 1, we see that the father blesses us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. From where? In the heavenly places. And so the fact that our father is in heaven isn't meant to communicate that he is far away. No, it's meant to tell us that he rules and he reigns. He has the authority to give to us what we need, to provide our needs from heaven. William Bridge, the Puritan, said, The word father is a sweet word, for it sweetens all our duties. Take the word father out of prayer, and how sour it is. The next thing we see is that we pray with a submissive heart in verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And friends, if you are a believer here, if you have repented of your sins and trust in Christ alone, as your savior, you are a citizen of the king. You are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is describing how us as citizens conduct ourselves. And last Sunday, we asked the question, do you long for heaven? So I just want to adjust that question a little bit for us this morning. Do you long to see the fulfillment or the culmination of God's kingdom. As citizens, we should long for the day when there are no more opposers of God's kingdom. We should long for the day when his kingdom is visibly seen in all of its fullness. And we know that Jesus is ruling and reigning at this very moment. And so when we pray this with this in mind, we are praying for the day when all of his promises are fulfilled. It's what Isaac Watts had in mind when he wrote the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. And we usually say this every year just to remind you, but he originally wrote it to describe Christ's second coming, not his first. And so that's why he says, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Verse 2, No more let sins or sorrows grow or thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings sure, for as the curse is found. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. He rules the world with truth and grace. Words like these should be in our minds as we pray. Yes, Lord, may your kingdom come. And Isaac Watts wrote another great hymn. Jesus shall reign where the sun. The first verse says this. Jesus shall reign Wherever the sun does its successive journeys run, his kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. The eternality and dominion of God's kingdom is on display here. And that's what we pray for. We pray for his sovereign dominion to be seen and to be enjoyed. And in the same breath, we recognize his sovereign dominion by humbly submitting to the Father's will. We submit to his purposes for 
his creation. And so we pray, Lord, may your will be done here on earth, just like it is in heaven. We read part of Psalm 103 already this morning. Uh, Farther down, we see a group of beings who obey God's will. How do they do it? Well, verse 20 says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers, who do his will. And so they give us a great example here. Joyful, immediate obedience. And so that's how we should pray for God's will to be done on earth. We have a picture of it in heaven. This is how we pray for it to be done on earth. That every part would be brought into submission to God's perfect will. But even as we pray this, though, we are acknowledging that God's will is not always done on earth, is it? As we look at the world around us, we see the sin and death that are ever so prevalent. We know these things are opposite to God's will. We mentioned Nigerian brothers and sisters being martyred this week. Uh, Yesterday, we were at a birthday party for a friend here from church, and I was talking to a police officer that is a police officer uh, in uh, St. Pete. He's a young guy, 26, 27 years old, and he was just, you know, telling me about the kinds of calls that he gets in his route there in St. Pete. 13, 14 calls a day sometimes, a lot involving children, young teenagers, 14-year-olds who are being arrested for guns, for drugs. And he, said, he told me, he said, I try, I try to mentor these, I try, these kids. I try to tell them, like, hey, I'm going to be praying for you. You don't have to continue in this way of life. Yeah, your father is currently in prison. You don't have to do that. You can, you can break this right now. Don't continue on in this path. And it, and it grieves him. He, says, he said, man, I don't even really want to take my family to, do any, uh, to go anywhere in St. Pete. Of course, he has a little bit different perspective as a police officer. He, he sees things that we don't. But, man, he was just, I, just the depravity and the sin and the death that's happening just right in our own neighborhood here. And that grieves us. It reminds us that not everything hap- is happening according to what the Lord wills. And even God's word brings this out. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so God in his great grace shows us his patience even in the midst of sin here on earth, allowing it as an opportunity for more people to turn to him to be saved. In order for us to have this right attitude of submission to God's will, we also must understand God's will rightly. What is God's will? It's a simple question. We must understand it. A theologian speak of three different aspects of God's will. And I'm just going to give these to you briefly. The first is his will of purpose. Will of purpose. And so this refers to God's overarching plan for the universe. And we see this come out in several places in Scripture. Isaiah 14, Jeremiah 51, Romans 8, 28, Ephesians 1, 9 through 11 are some examples. I'll give you one of them. Isaiah 14, 24, it says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. And so in this category, you can put the large issues of sin and Satan. 
The Lord is allowing both of these things to exist in his perfect timing, but one day they will come to an end exactly as God has planned. The second would be what is called his will of desire, his will of desire. And this operates within God's will of purpose, but it's more zoomed in. It's more focused. And so his will of desire is what we just mentioned previously, that some things the Lord desires are not happening at this moment. We even see this in Jesus's prayer. In Luke 13, verse 34, Jesus prayed, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. That's his will of desire. But then the final aspect of God's will is his will of command, his decree. R.C. Sproul calls it his preceptive will. That means it's based on his precepts or his laws. And so his will of command uh, is given to the whole world, but it's really only something that believers can fulfill. Only God's true children have the capacity and the desire to obey him. And Romans 6 tells us this, tells us the good news. Paul says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. There's been a change. We now have a desire to obey God's will. And so looking at these different aspects just gives us a tiny little peek uh, into his purposes. But this is what we are praying for when we say, not my will, but yours be done. And of course, the enemy to this is pride, isn't it? Pride leads us to reject, to rebel, to disobey. And so may we all, brothers and sisters, grow in humility and submission to God's will for this world and our lives. And so with that, we move from ascribing glory to God in this prayer to petitioning God for our needs. So as we come to him with our requests, requests we first pray with trust in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, most of the people present for Jesus' sermon would have had a very immediate need for bread each day. D.A. Carson says here, quote, the prayer is for our needs, not for our greeds. That's important, remember? It is for one day at a time, reflecting the precarious lifestyle of many first century workers who were paid one day at a time and for whom a few days illness could spell tragedy. It's very serious. So the main idea in this verse is that we trust God to provide our daily needs. And in trusting him, we know that he is the provider. He is the supplier. He is the source of everything we need. Because of the wealth and opportunities that we have here in the West, you know, we can easily start to thank ourselves for everything that we have, especially when things are going well. You know, we work hard to earn it, you know, have a job. We earn money. That, in turn, is income that we can use uh, to purchase food, our clothing, our, our, our housing, and so many other things. However, you could be the hardest working person on the planet, 
and you would still need to give praise to God. I know many of you are very, very hardworking here. I've been blessed by many of you. And you're setting an example for your, your boss, your fellow employees, by being a hard worker. Keep that up. That's an amazing witness. But no matter how hardworking you are, we still need to give glory to God. Because everything we have, life, breath, and the abilities we have, the talents we have, the opportunities we have, it all comes from the Lord. And Moses said to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 8, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. Have you thought about that? It's the Lord who gives you the power to get what you have. And so even though J. Vernon McGee thinks that wealthy Americans shouldn't pray this verse, he is missing the point. We come in faith to the Lord, recognizing that we are needy, trusting that he will keep his promise to his children to provide what we need for each day. And so maybe he has already provided your daily bread for you today. But we ask for it in a way that praises him for his past provision and trusting him for his future provision. And Proverbs 30, verse 8, is a great additional prayer that we should have on our lips. This is a verse I encourage you to memorize. I'm memorizing right, it right now. Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. That's a really good verse to have in your memory. So may we grow in our trust of the Lord. May we be quick to praise him for his faithfulness to provide our needs. The next way we pray with is with confession and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So in this verse, we see both the amazing truth of the forgiveness given to us by the Father uh, and our response to it. In Matthew here, he uses a word for sin that is translated as debt. Now, Luke, in his account, he uses a more common word. And if you look at the Luke 11 account of this prayer, you'll see the word sin there, not debt, sin. But here we are confronted with the fact that sin, the reality of sin, is a debt that we owe. But as believers, we know that the debt has been paid. In Colossians 2, 13 and 14, there are two of my favorite verses in the Bible. I need to memorize this, these. I don't have these memorized yet. Uh, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Amen. And so the debt was forgiven when we come to the Lord in repentance, asking for forgiveness. And we, as believers, know that we still sin. And so as citizens of God's kingdom, we come to him in confession. And this can be difficult to do because we often want to explain away or rationalize our sin somehow. We're all guilty of that. Yet the Lord knows our hearts and it's futile to try and hide anything from him. David says in Psalm 32, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. And so when we do confess our sins, 
It brings freedom, joy, and gratitude for the Lord's compassion. John Stott says here, quote, One of the surest antidotes to the process of moral hardening is the disciplined practice of uncovering our sins of thought and outlook, as well as of word and of deed, and the repentant forsaking of them, end quote. But the second half of this verse shows us our response to the Lord forgiving us. And we also see it more strongly in verses 14 and 15. And so here, it's assumed that we are forgiving others. You see those words there, as we also, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And the truth that we see in these verses is a simple warning that we must wrestle with. We must consider this this morning. That if we don't forgive the sins of others that come to us, the Father will not forgive our sins. That's sobering, isn't it? But the first thing to remember is that, once again, Jesus is speaking to those who are citizens of his kingdom. And so the truth that goes along with this is that forgiveness is part of the Christian life. Christians forgive because they have been forgiven. And we've already seen this on the Sermon on the Mount, that God's people are merciful, that God's people love their enemies. Later on in the book of Ephesians, we see that God's people forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven them. And so it's important for us, each of us, to understand practically, hey, what does forgiveness look like in my life, in my relationships with other people? And so guys, wherever you are, the two of you, uh, Nick and who else did I ask? Ryerson, yes. Um, They're going to pass out a resource that we want you to have. Um, This is a, a simple pamphlet on forgiveness. It's by Jay Adams. It's very helpful. It's a very short read. It won't take long at all, but I want you to take this home and I want you to read it because he talks about really good questions like, should I forgive somebody even if they do not come to me in confession and repentance? That's probably a question you've thought about. He also talks about the difference between seeking forgiveness and apologizing. Have you thought about, is there a difference between those two things? Well, he says there is. He says that apologizing is the world's substitute for forgiveness because it's saying sorry without admitting your sin. And if you have children, this is something that you've probably worked with your kids because one of your, ch- your child does something wrong. What do you say to them? You say, you need to, you need to go say sorry. And so what do they do? They go to maybe their sibling or something and they say sorry. And then... That's it, right? And so then you have to prompt them. You say, sorry for what? And you, you make them say, what did they do wrong? What did they do wrong? And, and maybe we as parents uh, need to change our language a little bit with this because we must come in confession to others the same way we come in confession to the Lord. When we come to the Lord in repentance, we come admitting our sin, naming the sin, saying, Lord, please forgive me. I did this. I broke your law in this way. Please forgive me. And so that same pattern needs to be, uh, needs to filter down through our relationships. We need to teach our kids this. We need to be very clear in our language of forgiveness, not sorry, and then qualify it and give a bunch of excuses or, you know, those really bad phrases. Well, I'm, I'm sorry if you feel offended. (laughs) That's not an apology, is it? No. And so if, if we truly have 
sinned against someone, we need to come, we need to name the sin, we need to ask forgiveness for it. So please take that home, read it, I think it'll be encouraging for you. Well, the content of our prayers must include confession, always remembering how the Lord has forgiven us. And so the final verse of this prayer shows us that we pray with hope in verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, are you aware that back in the year 2019, the Pope changed God's word? Did you hear about this? It's this verse right here. He officially changed it to, well, from, lead us not into temptation. He changed it to, do not let us fall into temptation. So what was his reasoning for doing that? Well, this is what he said, quote, a father doesn't do that. A father helps you to get up immediately. It's Satan who leads us into temptation. That's his department, end quote. So what, we, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, first question, and this is very easy to answer. First, uh, does the Pope have the authority to change God's word? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. But what about his arguments saying, well, the Father the Father's not going to lead us uh, into temptation. The Father's not going to lead us to sin. That's something Satan does. Well, this is a very good opportunity for us to have discernment, to compare Scripture with Scripture and to look closely at what Jesus is saying. That's a good opportunity for me as well as I was studying this, study it a little bit more deeply. And this verse on its face may be a little bit difficult to understand because it may beg the question, well, does God somehow tempt us to sin? Does God lead us to sin in some way? And so the first thing that we do with unclear passages is we see if there are any clear passages on this. And thankfully, there's a very clear passage on this that explains it. The book of James clearly tells us that God tempts no one. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So that clears up this any kind of interpretation right away. It clears it up. It's not talking about God leading someone to sin. But another thing I learned in my study is that the Greek word for temptation is a neutral word. It doesn't imply good or bad. It depends on the situation. It could go either way based on what you're being tempted with. It's a little bit different than our English word temptation. Because when we think of our English word temptation, we automatically think, well, yeah, this is something bad. I'm, I'm being tempted to sin. It's not good at all. But the other aspect that comes out from the Greek is that the word itself means experiment. It means an attempt. It means a trial. It means to prove something. So what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that God is not leading us to sin, but he could very well be leading us into a trial a testing for us, which could be an evil situation. It could be a situation where we have a choice to react sinfully or not. And Spurgeon says here about this, quote, God tempts no man. For God to tempt in the sense of enticing to sin is inconsistent with his nature and altogether contrary to his known character. But for God to lead us into those conflicts with evil, which we call temptations, is not only possible, but usual. 
So even though we would probably say, well, yeah, I don't, I don't want any trials in my life, we do know that the Lord sends trials our way to grow us. And in the midst of those trials, there is an opportunity, though, to react in a sinful way. And so this prayer gives us the language we need when we encounter various trials. And we know that when trials come our way, we are often weak. We are often afraid. We can react in the flesh. And so we cry out to God in the midst of our weakness. Lord, please don't bring a trial into my life that would be so strong that I will not be able to resist sin. And by praying this, we show our humility to the Lord because we recognize that we cannot do this by ourselves, that we are not strong enough. The curse of this world and the curse of sin will be with us until the Lord calls us home. But we cling to this promise here in this verse and also in 1 Corinthians 10.13. You know this verse. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And I said that with this verse, we pray with hope. And that is exactly what we see in the second phrase. Deliver us from evil. And you may have a footnote in your Bible that says, this could be translated as deliver us from the evil one. And that would be consistent as well. Because where was Jesus right before he came to give this sermon on the mount? He was being tempted by the evil one. He was being tempted by Satan. By the devil himself. And so he is encouraging his disciples that we have protection from the evil one, from God himself. In John 17, Jesus prayed, keep them from the evil one. He said it very clearly there. So it makes total sense uh, for this reading. That could very well, he'd be talking about the evil one. But by praying scripture, we show our submission to God's word. And we know that God's word is one of the graces that he has given us to protect us from sin. What does James 4 verse 7 say? It says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so we pray with a sure hope, knowing that God's word and God himself will protect us from the evil one. It's an amazing verse of hope, friends. But before we move to the last uh, two verses, we have what's called a textual variant in verse 13. These are always interesting. Uh, the ESV includes it only as a footnote. Uh, if you have a New American Standard Bible, you may have it written out, but it's in brackets. Those words are, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And the reason for this is that the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not include this phrase as part of this prayer. And the words actually don't show up in a, uh, a copy of God's word until about the 8th century. So it came in later. Uh, and if you are interested in uh, textual variants and how this works with God's word. I have a great article that explains specifically this one. Uh, it goes in, into a lot of depth and shows uh, why most likely it's not was not originally written, uh, and it gives some reasons why it was added later. Some some very good reasons actually why it was added later. 
Um, so just let me know. I can give that article to you if you're interested. But even if these words weren't originally part of Matthew's gospel, they are a very fitting way to end our prayers. Because this is a very biblical phrase. And it echoes uh, David's praise in 1 Chronicles 29, 11. David says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. So it is a fitting way uh, to end this prayer, definitely. So as we close out this prayer, we have seen that it is a very fitting way for us to enter into the new year. As we begin 2024 tomorrow, may we pray with reverence, with submission, with trust, with confession and hope, resting in our Father's plans for us. And as we look at those, these qualities here, we know that they extend beyond this prayer just into our daily life. We live our daily lives in reverence and submission to the Lord. We live our daily lives in trust of who he is. We, we often come to him in confession throughout our day. And we live as ones who have a sure hope, definitely. Now, in verses 14 and 15, uh, Jesus continues to expound on the importance of forgiveness. And so these verses are going to be our application for us today. How do we forgive? Well, we forgive with mercy and forsake bitterness. Verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So we see the first verse here is positive. If you forgive, your Father will forgive you. And so we forgive others with great mercy, recognizing the mercy and grace that has been given to us. Just as we just sang, that grace that is greater than all the sins that we have committed. And we can think of Paul's words here in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, where he says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I wonder if this is true for you. Has the Lord used you as an example for those who are come to know the Lord? Are you an example of God's great mercy? I know all of us are, uh, but maybe you can point to your life and look, and others can see it as well, and they say, wow, that's just amazing. You are a totally different person, and a totally different person for the better. I see there's a change in your life. What is that? May the Lord use us all as an, an examples of his mercy in this way to those around us. But the reality is, for those who are not forgiving, the unforgiving Christian is in sin and cannot expect to have God's forgiveness until this sin is repented of. That's the harsh truth here. Uh, in some months to come, we are going to be in Matthew 18, and we are going to look at the parable of the unforgiving servant, and that is the perfect illustration for these verses here. And so I encourage you to read it, maybe tomorrow uh, you most likely have the day off tomorrow. Read it uh, as an ongoing devotion of the Lord's Day and consider that story. There's a, a very strong warning at the end of that parable that Jesus gives. But our final verse has a negative aspect to it. What is the 
heart attitude of unforgiveness? Well, often it's bitterness. It's a hurt that we refuse to let go of. But this verse shows us that we do not have the luxury of holding on to our bitterness towards other people. Hebrews 12 warns us of a root of bitterness that springs up and causes trouble. You've probably seen that in people. But there will be no fellowship with the Lord. There will be no blessing to be found here, only judgment. And James 2.13 also warns us, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Very sobering. And so friends, may we all, may we ask the Lord, Holy Spirit, please work in my heart and life. Please cause me to throw away any type of bitterness that I am holding on to. Because we've all known people who have let bitterness control their lives, haven't we? And what happens? Well, they turn into angry, hopeless, nasty people. That, those things are not to be named among believers. If that's named among us, man, we have strayed so far away from the cross. What pride is in us that we cannot forgive and let go of bitterness when Christ has forgiven us of so much. Amen. I think of, uh, we had a neighbor uh, for many years, a lady that was very bitter. She was very nasty, very angry uh, to us. And there was a small window of time where we had a good relationship with her. But then something happened. We're, we're never, we can't figure out what it was. She would never tell us. But all of a sudden there was a turn and, and she was very nasty towards us. She swore at me, flipped me off uh, one time. And uh, one time the girls went to take her some cookies and um, I had forgotten that she was gluten-free. And so we didn't make gluten-free cookies for her. And she yelled at the girls. She says, don't you know I'm gluten-free? You're going to kill me with these cookies. And so they came back crying and uh, she was so mean to them. And um, we were praying for this lady every week that the Lord would give us opportunities to show her kindness. And, but our, the kindness we did show was just thrown back in our faces. And she had so much hate and anger in her. And it was just bitterness in her life. Um, she had gone through hard times in her life. And she didn't turn to the Lord, but she, tur she turned inward and let that bitterness control her. And eventually she moved, and she's no longer next door. I'm not sure exactly what's happened to her, but... Um, that's just, she was just a great example of somebody who had bitterness controlling their life. And I'm sure you have examples as well. And so may we as believers, as brothers and sisters together, uh, for those of you who are members of this church, uh, may we not let bitterness grow among us. May we be quick to come in forgiveness, uh, to come in repentance to one another. If we offend one another in some way in this church, may we be quick to do that. But as we've been saying this whole time, and we will continue to say that all of this happens because of the Holy Spirit. He drives us back to the cross. He confronts us with our sin and causes us to walk in righteousness. And so may we show mercy and forgiveness to those who come to us in repentance. And we can look at the, this prayer here and know that Christ perfectly fulfilled this. Christ's name is holy. Christ's kingdom is coming. He is the one that provides for us our daily bread. He is the one who offers forgiveness through his work. We come back to the Father because of him. He is the one that has caused the Holy Spirit to 
uh, indwell us. And so we are, the Holy Spirit uh, takes us the opposite way from sin, doesn't he? He confirms the work of the Lord in our lives. He's the one that causes the fruit of the Spirit to be shown. What an amazing, perfect Savior Jesus is. And I don't know all of you here this morning. There's some visitors here. We're really glad you're here. Uh, But we want to just share with you that this mercy that we're talking about is extended to you this morning. But it's only for a time. It's not forever. We're so blessed as, uh, as humans to live in this time where someone can be born. They can live 80, 90 years of their life. They can enjoy God's good creation, the sunrise, the trees, the plants, the good food that God has given us, friends and family, amusement parks. You can name, just name whatever you want to name. Anybody can be born and enjoy these things and yet reject God for 80 and 90 years of their life. And the Lord doesn't. The Lord often does not take them to hell right away, does he? No, he allows them to live 80, 90, or 80, 90 years. So many people take advantage of this mercy that is offered. And so we want to encourage you this morning, don't take this for granted. Mercy and grace and forgiveness is the call to you today, is being extended to you today. But do not put it off until tomorrow. This is the last day of the year. You don't know what 2024 holds. We don't want this. We don't pray this for you. But there is a possibility that you will not see 2024. We don't know. None of our days are promised to us. And so that's why the call of the gospel is so urgent and important. Mercy will not be around forever. One day, if you do not repent of your sins and trust in Christ, the only thing that's going to be left for you is eternal, horrible judgment. And we don't want that for you. None of us deserve God's grace. None of us are better than anybody else in this room. We are all wretched sinners. The only thing that's different is that God has opened our eyes to this amazing salvation that he offers. And we've repented and we trusted him. That's the only difference. And so we just encourage you to consider your life. It's, of course, it's something that we do at the end of every year, don't we? We come to the end of year, we're thinking about, oh, what goals do I have? Is, am I going to make resolutions? What things would I like to do in 2024? The most important thing for you to consider is your eternity before the Lord. That's the most, most important. Any t- if you want to call it a resolution, you can call it what you want, but that's the most important thing you need to consider. And so we call you to that today. But what amazing words we have from our Savior as he gives us this model of prayer and how we come to the Lord to give him glory, but also how we come to him in petition as he provides our needs. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and then we will sing. Lord, we're just so grateful to you this morning. Thank you for your compassion to us that you have not just thrown us off neglected us, that you did not create this world and then just say, good luck, fend for yourselves. No, you created this world and us with a plan of redemption in mind. And so we're so thankful for the mercy that is shown to us each day of our life. May we grow in our understanding of your holiness, of your mercy, of your grace to us. 
May we be so quick to come to you, recognizing that you are the supplier of all good things, of all of our needs. May we not confuse our needs with our greeds. Help us with that, Lord. I know I often confuse those things, and I think I need something when it's really just something that I want. Lord, may we be quick to extend forgiveness and mercy to others who have wronged us in some way. And may we be quick to come in confession, first to you and to others as needed, Lord. May you grow us and may we be a light on a hill in these matters that we've discussed here today, Lord. And as we close, we want to bring you all the glory. All the glory belongs to Christ because you yourself are our daily bread. You are the living water that satisfies. You are the Lord of love. And so we proclaim your rule and your reign this morning. And we ask, Lord, that as we go into 2024 tomorrow, that you would allow us to be faithful to you for however long you have us on this earth. And may we long for the day when we are with you, but we may we long for the day when we see the culmination, the fulfillment of your kingdom. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Thanks for listening to our podcast. King's Cross Church meets at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at thekingscrosschurch.com. God bless.